You are now entering the transit zone. Welcome back to the Transit Zone. I'm Peter Clark in Melbourne, Australia. Margot Kingston in Comboyne, Regional New South Wales. We acknowledge the traditional custodians of the lands on which we record and produce these podcasts, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation and the Beapai people of the Port Macquarie region of New South Wales. We pay respect to their elders. Margot, great to see you again. And what a week. We're in another hot political week in Australian politics. Budget week. And we heard the budget on Tuesday and we heard the address and reply from opposition leader Anthony Albanese last night. And we're recording this on Friday, the 1st of April. Of course, we're on the brink, aren't we now, of finally getting into the campaign proper for the next federal election. Interesting that Scott Morrison's decided not to, well, he said he's decided not to go this weekend, and the only reason can be the debacle in the New South Wales Party means that the full court of the Supreme Court is hearing an appeal by a member of the executive saying that the pre-selections of three sitting members isn't, isn't legal, so... I'm assuming that he's he's put off going to the election because he may not have candidates. I couldn't believe it that they sent the Solicitor General of the Commonwealth of Australia to the High Court yesterday to say, could you please deal with this because, you know, we're in a bit of trouble timing-wise. Susan Kiefel, the Chief Justice, said, well, you know, go back to the Supreme Court in New South Wales and at the same time drew a line under the, the appeal by the, the right-wing Kimberley Kitchen faction refused leave to appeal to the High Court. So Labor is ready to go and the Liberals aren't ready to go. To me, the other big political issue this week was that the Liberals were closed down on their their opening on Albanese with the Kimberley Kitchen bullying allegations because Connie Ferravanti-Wells said that Morrison was a bully. So Morrison had just called Albanese gutless and for not having an inquiry, and he said he wasn't going to have one. So, look, to me, it's just both parties are just so messy at the moment. I just wonder whether the mood might be to just give everyone a shock. I'm not sure. As far as the budget went, I felt that Frydenberg's budget speech was was just throwing money with no plan, and it reminded me so much of, of John Howard's 2007 desperation. Albanese didn't do a rud and say, I'll be more fiscally responsible. But I actually couldn't believe the open goal that the government left on aged care. I thought Albanese looked strong. And I think that the desperation of Morrison came in, I think it was the last question time when he said, in sheer frustration, Albanese, you're a blank page, you're a blank page, you're a blank page, because it was so easy for him last time to just just run a whole series of scares on, on Labor's big picture. You know, you look back on Labor's big picture, which was electric cars, climate change policy, cleaning up negative gearing, cleaning up capital gains tax, cleaning up franking credits, and you can just go, wow, in retrospect, it would have been a pretty positive thing to elect a government that actually wanted to govern. Look, you know, I'm at the stage where I don't get angry anymore. I just think, well, you know, this is the biggest election of my lifetime and we'll see how it goes and we'll all do our best and... I'm sort of beyond angry, if you know what I mean. It's just, well, you know, let's see if, if our democracy is going to sort itself out or whether we're going to, we're going to decide to, um, to go into decline um, 
and try and try our best to look after ourselves. The omens aren't really good, are they, Margot, for how the media is going to support our democracy in this coming campaign? The omens are not good at all, but that's something you, Tim, and I can discuss in the next couple of weeks, I think, here on the Transit Zone. As you know well, because you've been very much the driver of it, we've documented the Indies movement, the independence community-based movement, uh, voices for, voices of around Australia. Roughly 30 now, I think, of those and many independent candidates. Let's, by the magic of the internet, go straight to the heart of Page, which sits below the Queensland border, embraces the extraordinary part of Australia enduring floods at the moment. The independent candidate is Hannabeth Luke. Hannabeth, welcome to the Transit Zone. Hi, Peter. Hi, Margot. Thanks for having me on. It's great to see you. Give us an update on just exactly what's happening in your part of the world. We've seen the floods come back. We've seen the levee in Lismore top for the second time in a couple of weeks. That stuff we heard about once in a thousand years, once in 3,000 years. Well, now we're talking about once in a month. Bring us up to date. What's happening, not only physically, but emotionally in, in terms of morale with the people in your part of the world? Outside my window now, I can see a muddy, slick, full river here in Evans Head. In Lismore, Woodburn, Broadwater, and through the Richmond-Wilson River system, the waters are flooding through people's homes for the second time in a month. Many of my friends, many of the people who've been supporting my campaign have been really badly impacted by this. I would guess that about 30 of my supporters and volunteers had the waters go through their homes a month ago, and many of them will be seeing them for the second time now. I had one person supporting my campaign. His house that he'd spent the last 20 years building slid down a hill and is unusable. And on top of that, I've got supporters who have COVID and one who's trying to get his family back from Ukraine. Like We've never known times as uncertain as this. And I, I'll be really interested to see how, how this recovery, how this impact is going to make people look at this elected government and how this is being dealt with. At the moment, people are just hurting so badly. And I, I, my heart is with the people in, in our region. And it feels so odd to just be talking as the waters are so high again. That one thing that has come from this that I think is a really important take home message is just how good people are, just how good community is. We have now hundreds, if not thousands, of heroes in our electorate, heroes in tinnies, heroes in gumboots, heroes who've been doing everything in their power to help get their neighbours, friends and family back on their feet, and it is profoundly inspiring. But it's just such a weary time to see everybody go through it again. A young family that I know just spent the last two weeks all their friends plastering to get their house back to a functional form. In Woodburn last night, even though the waters came up, I know that people are camping in their homes because they have nowhere else to go. So over this last month, our region has known challenges like no other time. But we were already facing a housing crisis. As the eighth poorest electorate in the country, our electorate has gone back. At a time that the whole country was booming, Page has gone backwards economically. Half of our people live in poverty in Page. People are on less than $500 a week. That's half of people in page. And rents for a family home is $350. So the big questions now, Peter, are, I think, how do we pick up the pieces in the next few days? How do we plan for the next big event, whether it's fires, floods or big winds, so that our community can again be at the centre and work with our emergency services? How can we be best prepared? 
And how can we look ahead to make sure that there is housing, including social housing, affordable housing, and housing for the professionals who can't afford to even live in our region? Because these, make no mistake, these are critical times for our region. And <laughs> will a vote count? You bet it does. You bet the vote is going to count at this next election. And it's going to be especially important for regions like Page that have been left behind by the political parties. The anger and, and the sadness in our communities is is palpable. On the 20th of February, you did a tweet saying, come to the Metropole in Lismore for a fabulous launch with live music. On that 24th, you said, right, well, the rain's come, we can't have it. And the Sunday before last, I think, you did a launch where you, you started at Emerald Beach at the south, you drove up to Grafton, stood in a park where Sir Earl Page had stood as an independent before starting the country party, went up to Lismore, and I'll never forget this, a, a mechanics business in industrial area, bought by someone building a, a cafe, which was completely ruined by the floods over the, over the roof. So the cafe owners painted it white and said, here's the shell, and your supporters created a pop-up with free food, all proceeds to the floods, and it was... I don't know how to describe it. It got a big crowd, but it, it, it did have a, how would I put it, a sadly positive feeling, a coming together. And I'm just wondering how you see a community in crisis coming together, forgetting about the politics. Is, is the politics relevant, really, in such a situation? What I love about the way the type of politics that the Voices for movement is working is that it puts the community at the centre of politics. What Kathy McGowan and Helen Haynes and others that are following in their footsteps are doing is saying, look, politics isn't about a few grey-haired old fellows arguing and bickering about things in some building far away. Politics is about community. Politics is about you having your say and being listened to about the things that matter. And that is what my event and my what became a campaign flood raiser was about, was saying, look, I'm here for you. This isn't about me. This is about you as a community sharing with me what is important for you right now. And that's why in Lismore I invited six people from the community to talk about the things that are important to them. I had two farmers one who wanted to talk about our preparedness to flooding, the other who wanted to talk about our action on climate. I had a, a man who works with homeless people. We're in a place, in a region now we have 20,000 people who are displaced. I had a young woman who became only old enough to vote just weeks ago, and she called me badass. I, I like that. <laughs> she wants to have someone that recognises what's important to the youth. The school strike for climate that took place again last week, that they want to see political change, the young people do. The farmers want to feel backed by their representative. The homeless need homes and they want someone in government who's going to fight for them because we're getting people who are being made homeless, who are in jobs. People who are, are, are working in disability services, they're working in even manufacturing, even working you know, for the meatworks and casino. People are getting to a point where they can't afford to pay rent. So homelessness, disaster preparedness, climate action, supporting a regional economy with jobs for the future, those things are at the centre of people's lives. Um, my job as a candidate is to say, look, 
I know that you're hurting right now. I know that it's hard to see beyond the mud that's thickening people's homes again. But politics does matter. And the budget coming forward this week highlights again just how important government is because they get to decide where the dollars go. They get to decide whether voters will get bribed by a quick $250 handout and a six-month cut on on some of their living costs over a long-term plan to make sure that our children have houses for the future, to make sure our families and children have some kind of stability in their future because if we keep muddling along, which which is all we've been doing under this government, we are going down a path of least resistance, we are going down a path of more of the same. And I tell you right now, looking outside my window, it is not pretty. Hannah Beth, you used that heroes amongst the community rhetoric a moment ago. And coming from you, that's authentic. But I noticed that the Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, used exactly the same rhetoric in a way to shield himself from a form of responsibility. It was great the community got together. That's who we are as Australians, etc. But of course, it must be sinking in to many in that region, including Lismore, that in practical terms, they're on their own now. We've seen them let down over and over again. Are you observing that realisation sinking in that in many ways, effectively, they're on their own? That's what happened a month ago. You know, if we're talking about Australian values, let's go back to the heart of it. You know, mateship, compassion, a fair go, being proactive. This is what our community did when the waters rose and nobody was ready, when the emergency services were just completely overwhelmed, our volunteer services just weren't enough, when it took our government 10 days, 10 days to declare a state of emergency. People are are feeling abandoned. I was speaking with the cane farmers and a few other people in our community over the last week, over the last month. The farmers are saying they feel profoundly abandoned by the current government. These are guys that have trusted the National Party for for decades. We're seeing a real shift in that and a loss of trust in what we have now and a recognition that although our local member may be popular, he's a part of that government and he votes with them. It doesn't go against them. So people are starting to go, hang on a minute, what's happening here? We were on our own. And that suspicion, people saying, well, you know, I said, why do you think it 10 days to declare a state of emergency. And people are very cynical. They say, well, because Scott Morrison wanted to have that press release, that that moment where he could talk about that announcement. Well, what we need is real help. We don't need aid by media release. What our community needs right now is heartfelt and genuine concern and support in dollars in terms of what we do with our emergency services, in terms of bricks and mortar and the wraparound services that will support the mental health of our people who are hurting so, so much in terms of the emotional impact, the trauma of seeing the waters rise twice in a month. I think people are wanting to see change. And I hope that as their independent candidate, they will see that that's what I'm here for, to support them, to vote on the things that matter, to stand up and not be influenced by vested interests or the party line. We've seen more from come from this budget, more subsidies for fossil fuels over support for our poorest people. People say to me, oh, where are you going to get the money from for all these great ideas? It's like, well, look, if these fossil fuel industries, coal and gas, just paid their fair share and stopped getting government handouts, the rest of us would be doing a hell of a lot better. I remember going to the Bentley blockade in 2014, which is the most extraordinary story of one farmer saying to a CSG company, 
met Gasco, could you come in and explore for CSG? And the next door farmer saying, could you put your protest camp here and stop them doing it? The New South Wales government wanted to send 700 cops to stop the protesters. And Lismore and Surround, so farmers and greenies, got together and refused to provide accommodation for the police. The RFS refused to provide support for the police. The shops refused to serve the police. And finally, the government said, oh, all right, we won't do it. That was an example where a whole community got together and said, sorry, you can't do that. So there is something in this Northern Rivers community that when they get together, they can change, change the world, really. Can you see any congruence or similarities there as someone who actually knows quite a lot about this. Oh yeah, it is funny you bring that up, Margot. That was the topic of my PhD. So I started my PhD when a few isolated people, farmers were saying, wait a minute, what's that drilling rig doing over on the other side of the valley? What's that doing here? What is that? And uh, quite a few people, including the Greens, are saying, great, a local supply of, of cheap energy. This is This is a great thing for our communities. And I watched the wake-up moment when they looked at what was happening with the shale gas in America and that whole film Gasland and the and the people lighting their taps and going, hang on, this isn't as clean and green as we thought. And the people came together across our communities, as you said, all different types of people, the farmers um, and long-term sort of experienced activists who came together and had a, and brought along with them the whole community. It was a really interesting time. And I interviewed people across the region. I was a part of running the poll. So Lismore City Council said, we want, we want to find out what our community actually thinks on this. So at the local government election, the, the New South Wales Electoral Commission ran a poll, which was, do you support coal seam gas exploration in your local government area? And 87% of people said no. So I helped to develop that question. And I worked with all my volunteers to run a survey to find out why people had that view. We did the same thing a, a year later in the Richmond Valley next door. And we found that there wasn't community support for the industry because they were very concerned about its impact and how it clashed with the existing way of life and with water systems as well. I didn't just do that work in in New South Wales. I actually conducted over about 200 interviews over that space of six years. And I did a lot of interviews in Queensland where the industry was developed and, and developing. I spoke with farmers, business leaders, other residents, young people about how the industry was working for them. And you know what I found? Those people who are most supportive of the industry at the beginning, the businessmen and those community leaders, were the most disillusioned at the end. So the reason I'm happy to come out quite strongly against this industry now is because I've published 15 academic papers. I've spoken with hundreds of people. I've surveyed thousands of people. And I know, because they tell me that this industry has been a negative a negative influence on their lives and the short-term economic gains were not worth it. They hollowed out the communities, they emptied the schools, the water level dropped to shocking proportions in, in some of those areas. So, you know, I'm an expert in this space. I've devoted the last many, many years and yeah, 15 academic papers <laughs> on this. And I've worked with colleagues across the world. So when I see a government that's putting more and more money into gas and this gas-led recovery, it makes my blood boil because I know this is not the right thing for our region or any region in Australia. I know that in the Northern Territory, the, the traditional custodians came together and said, we don't want this. They used loopholes in the planning legislation to get one or two people to agree to it and are riding roughshod over those communities now in the Beetaloo, what they're calling the Beetaloo. But there are other names that people in that region prefer for their home. This gas-led recovery is also where our 
our dollars are being thrown at as if some kind of solution to coronavirus. It just doesn't make any sense to me. But what I also see in this budget is this greenwashing of coal seam gas and shale gas, that it's going to be a good thing. It's still a transition fuel. Well, it's not. The fugitive emissions are well demonstrated to be shocking. I won't go into all of the impacts, but at the end of the day, the main point is that it's not a solution to climate change. It's more carbon emissions. And what we're seeing is this greenwashing, which means, which the government's trying to say that this, they're sort of coming up with these, um, one thing, the carbon sequestration, you're looking at the Gorgon project. The t- these technologies have so far been a disaster. <laughs> they're not working. So the government's relying on unproven technologies somewhere in the future to cut our emissions whilst throwing as much money of our public purse at coal and gas. And that's not right. It doesn't make sense for Australia's future for the future of our regions, to leave people dependent on an industry that the world's moving away from. So if we don't get on the front foot, develop a sensible plan to reskill these folks, bring them into new jobs, then we're going to win the Wooden Spoon Award for climate and jobs in Australia. And I don't want to see that for our regions. You're listening to another Transit Zone podcast. I'm Peter Clark with Margot Kingston. Our guest is Dr. Hannabeth Luke, the independent candidate for PAGE in northeastern New South Wales, an area currently ravaged by intense flooding. Hannabeth, you alluded earlier to those deep tribal loyalties, particularly to the National Party on the part of farmers, but there are others as well, to other parties within that electorate of PAGE. Midst the stress Midst the devastation of these recurring floods in that electorate, are you perceiving, are you observing a fragmenting of those deeper loyalties, a shift, some sort of seismic shift on the way people are viewing the party system itself and politics generally? Yes, every day. Every time I go out in public, whether it's in the north of Page up in Kyogle, whether it's down through Grafton and Casino, down into Emerald Beach and in that southeast area, I have people coming up to me saying, oh, you're Hannibal. I've been a national voter all my life and I'm so sick of it. I have farmers coming up to me saying, I've been loyal to the National Party because my parents were loyal to the National Party, but they've lost the plot. They're not representing my interests anymore and this time I'm voting for you. And I've had the same thing of Labour supporters as well. I feel that Labour's also got too much vested interest in fossil fuels and they're not coming out strong enough on climate change. And both parties miss the importance of looking after our regions and that regional disadvantage where you get a big injection in affordable housing in the state, but it all ends up in Sydney because of the nature of the way that the funding goes out. There are simply more developers in Sydney who have got those funds and those projects ready to go. So they're the ones that get the money and the regions end up with less. So People are recognising that the party system is a big part of the problem. And that is why this is such an interesting and exciting election. This is the election where people start to realise that, wait a minute, maybe with those old loyalties aren't the most important thing here. Maybe those ideologies aren't the most important thing here. The most important thing is that we have a representative who is independent and able to listen to me and take my concerns, my views directly to Canberra. So one of the things we've discussed a fair bit is how can you possibly fundraise when everyone you know, including you, is trying to look after your neighbours and friends and people in trouble? 
I understand that Climate 200 has helped you in a no-strings way. They put out a, a particular appeal for you to just give you that ballast, given that you're in a unique situation. So can you tell me how your campaign is working and what you're going to use those funds for? Yeah, thank you, Margot. Really good question. Electoral funding is a, is a major issue, and that's why one of my the main elements of my campaign is honest politics and sorting out electoral funding. The playing field is incredibly uneven. The incumbent here gets $800,000 before I've even sort of got to the start line. And then there's the whole pork barreling and there's these little handouts that keep getting thrown at people. If you're not in a party and if you're not in the system, you are massively disadvantaged. And that's that's a problem because it creates reproduction of the same party system over and over and the same people in power. So what Climate 200 have done is nothing like that 800,000 that like, the incumbent's going to get, but it is a really solid start. So what they've done is they've given me enough funds to support a, a basic campaign on a shoestring. They wouldn't fund me without me demonstrating that I already had a campaign running. So they wouldn't fund me uh, until I had uh, demonstrated. We've already funded, we've got $30,000 that we've raised from the community so that they can then say, okay, well, we can help you along. We can see that you are making good sense. We can see that you've got a community behind you, got the Voices for Page group behind me. I've got a group of active volunteers supporting me. Okay, you're a viable candidate. We're going to help you, but we just need you to agree to one thing. Are you going to act with integrity and transparency as a candidate and as an MP? Now, who can disagree with that? That's what we're trying to do here. If I don't act with integrity and honesty and do my absolute best to be the best version of, of who I am and what I want to see, what's the point? So I think what Climate 200 are doing is really, really good because it allows independence to stand up. It allows people who are going to genuinely represent the community to have a chance of getting elected. Some pro forma questions that we've asked all the indie candidates, Annabeth. Firstly, do you accept the label that Zali Stegel accepted? Are you a fiscal conservative and a social progressive? Do you put your hand up for that label? Um, I support our regional economy as a key element of my campaign. I know that we need to ensure that we've got jobs for the future. I know we need to look after our regional businesses and keep that cash flowing around in our economy. In the regions here, we know better than anyone, and the farmers know this better than anyone else, that our environment is our economy. Our fishing industries know this too well. Our farmers know this, and our tourism industries know this. So what I think we need to do is stop separating environment and economy and say, look, uh, we, we, we've got to ensure that we've got jobs for the future. Let's work together to ensure how we're going we're gonna to do that and achieve that for our region. Can I give you a test question then? Aged care is obviously going to be a totemic issue in this coming election. Last night, Albanese laid out a five-point plan. Do you accept that the best way of getting top bang for the public buck in aged care is to keep it in the for-profit sector or largely remove it from the profit sector? What we have now in aged care is a system that is very, very fragmented. Um, I had my mother on the phone this morning. She's 80 years old and she fell over last year and broke her wrist. As a result of that, I had to engage with the aged care system to, to try and get her the support that she needed to try and 
figure out what our options might be moving from a house with 100 stairs. And I was absolutely shocked. I was absolutely shocked at the fragmentation of the system, how many phone calls it took to get support. And now we're six months later. She's had a little bit of support along the way, but she can't even get providers. So when you're leaving it to the private sector purely, people can fall through the cracks. So I think a, a little a little bit more um, government guidance and support and drawing together those different providers is going to be really important. Who's there delivering it on the ground may not be as important as how well connected they are to the services and the support. What you want to have is a system where people are working together rather than not understanding what, what's happening in other places. So I would love to see an aged care system where you have better funding for the support for elderly people and their families for access to those systems. When I was um, in my mid-20s, my 90-year-old grandmother had dementia and I actually went back to the UK to Cornwall to look after her and I was there for a few years. When she fell over and the same thing happened to her, she ended up in hospital just like my mum. The social worker came in, the government-supported social worker came in and it was all sorted within an hour. <laughs> it was just such a different process. It can work. Well-supported aged care can work. But at the moment, it's not working for the providers. It's not working for the people in the sector. And it's certainly not working for the elderly. It needs a major overhaul. And we need to see those findings of the Aged Care Commission implemented because the work's already been done. The hard work has been done. The researchers have looked at this. The people on the ground have said what needs to be said. But we just need to implement that. Another pro forma question for you. It, in fact, came up quite strongly last night on the Q&A program on ABC television. One of the audience members asked Zali Stegel whom she would support in the case of a hung parliament, rather like the Gillard-Abbott situation. All the Indies have been asked this question. All the Indies have actually put the question off in many ways. So I'm putting the question to you now. If you are elected, if you find yourself in that hung parliament situation, not an implausible scenario... Which side of politics will you support? I think uh, we've got a very high chance of a hung parliament, Peter. And uh, it sounds like a bad thing, but it will be the best thing for Australia this time. There's no doubt about that. In the event of a hung parliament, I will go back to my values that have been informed by the community. I will go back to the issues that matter to the people in page, which is affordable housing, fair education, support and, and recovery from this natural disaster and look to which party gives me the, the best pathway forward for my communities. That, it's as simple as that. It will be a negotiation, and, but they will need to come to the table when I'm sitting on that crossbench. They want to form a government with me. Andrew Wookie on this podcast gave some advice to Indies who may find themselves as MPs in the near future. He said, don't do any deals. Maybe give confidence and supply on some basis, like the one you just described, but then move to a more deliberative parliament. In other words, work across the parliament. Is that how you're seeing it? Absolutely. I've published a paper on this, Peter. <laughs> um, deliberative democracy is, is a really powerful thing, but it's not that complicated. <laughs> it's just about people having a say in the decisions that shape their lives. And the ways of doing that, running polls and surveys, Jackie Lambie does it really well, actually. She's not sure on how she's going to vote on something. She'll send a poll out to the community and say, right, what do you guys want me to do on this? The principles of deliberative democracy go a little bit beyond that as well. It's about making sure that when people have a say, 
or have a vote or whatever it is, their input onto that issue, they're well informed. And it's about there being a transparent process that gives people equal opportunity to have input as well. To me, it takes that idea that was developed by Kathy McGowan and the Indi group, the Voices for Movement, to the next level, because we're using those technologies as well to say, look, how do you want me to act on this? That's what deliberative democracy is all about. And that is the future I would like to see in democratic system of Australia. You've had a, an interesting life, you know, tough childhood, halfway house, first in your family to finish high school, uni, looked after your grandmother, PhD, started the first ever, I think, regenerative agriculture university course, two little kids. My biggest interest is always how does a, a person with a, with a real productive, successful life, why do they take that step to say, how about electing me? So could you just take us through that process for you? Yeah, thanks, Margot. I'm a part of this community and I understand this community because my life hasn't been a straight, straight line like an arrow into politics. It's not been a dream of mine to be a politician. I have a, a career that I love at the university and it's such a pleasure to work with these farmers and do all of that work in regenerative agriculture and with farming groups across Australia. But look, I ran away from home when I was 16 and I was supported by a government social house that was there to look after young people and and I finished off school and I and I did okay <laughs> but without those that support and mentorship I don't know what my future would have been and I went on to university and I will never forget the day when I graduated of my four or five graduations because <laughs> my grandmother came over from Cornwall and she had not had those opportunities that I had and she sat in the audience and clapped and cried and it was one of the best moments of my life. So I know what it means to be able to pursue a career that means something to you and find a job that you love. And so that's why I'm so supportive of education from the beginnings and through preschool all the way through to university and TAFE. Not everyone's gonna love university. Some people are gonna to wanna to get out of school as quickly as possible, I really get it. And But they're gonna make excellent mechanics and tradies and we need those tradies now more than ever my brother's a builder and a chippy my husband's a teacher i know how overworked our teachers are and i i was just shocked to see another three billion dollars go to private schools that, that didn't go to the public system you know this these inequalities i live and breathe this this has been a part of my life and i'm not coming here with a silver spoon in my mouth to say you know i, I just want to be a politician i you know the only reason I want to be a politician is because we need change. We need political will to change things. And if people like me don't stand up, we're going to end up with more of the same and things won't get better. So that's why I decided in the midst of a very busy life, you know, volunteering for marine rescue and bringing up my beautiful kids, I decided to just step into this space because we can't wait another three years for this change. We need a government that's going to be held to account now. And a government that spent nothing on a Federal Integrity Commission is not good enough. Hannah Beth, my final question to you. You mentioned COVID earlier, and you may realise that Margot, Tim Dunlop and I started this podcast series in the broad context of coronavirus world. And that's been a, a drumbeat theme within these podcast episodes. And of course, now we're seeing an extraordinary arc from the very early days of zero tolerance of COVID right through to today, where we have the living with COVID ideology ruling. You mentioned COVID and more people getting COVID in your area. I'd love to hear your analysis of COVID and coronavirus within that regional context 
And particularly because I understand that certainly around Nimbin, I know Mullumbimby's outside the electorate, but there has been a good deal of anti-vax activity, anti-vax attitudes in that part of the world. How are you seeing now the whole approach to public health and the COVID pandemic, and particularly the existence of long COVID, which is very serious, very widespread in Australia and presumably in the Page electorate as well, long COVID, the chronic dimension of coronavirus. How are you seeing that as well? Just a final analysis from you on coronavirus world. I think it comes back to communication, Peter. A big reason for that people talk about when they are scared to be vaccinated or people who've indeed lost their jobs because they don't want to be vaccinated. It comes back to communication. And I think all of this comes back to communication. People understanding the risks versus the benefits, people understanding the impacts of long COVID and presenting that in a really clear way that people can understand. That's really important. But also when people do have vaccine injuries, being really transparent and clear about how that's reported as well. And that feeling that people who've, you know, people have definitely come up to me as a, as a candidate and said, I'm, we're really against the mandate. We want you to stand up strong on this. And I said, well, what's, what's going on? Tell me your story. And you've got nurses and, and teachers who have stepped away from their jobs and changed careers. And actually a few that have been volunteering down here their concern is that they don't feel that it's being properly reported. So just making sure that 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 reporting is really clear, really transparent. And in that way, we can have those proportional responses to COVID. I'm triple vax myself. I think it's a, you know, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a dangerous time where there is complacency now around COVID and we've, we've lived and breathed lockdowns for, for years. And suddenly it's like, what COVID? Well, it's still around and, and long COVID is still happening, as you say. So we still need to take this very seriously, but we need to make sure that those, those decisions that are made are evidence-based and well communicated with the community and that community concerns are well understood as well. So there's always that balance and people want to see the end of this COVID roller coaster that we've all been on. But the reality is it's it's still simmering. So Hannabeth, it's pretty clear that the Clive Palmer and the far right parties are going to take votes from the nationals on an anti-vax, anti-vax mandate platform. How can you get those people to preference you? <laughs> Uh, second, to really make this a, a contest with the Nats. I think that's a, a really concerning point, Margot. I know that there's been quite a bit of, let's call it education. I think it might be the opposite of that. Look, it's important that people understand the preferencing system. I think that's really, really good. But I think there's this assumption that those parties are going to act in the interests of people who are anti-mandate. I'm actually pretty cynical about that. I don't know if that's really going to happen. And I think that based on their political advertising, which demonstrates no <laughs> no affiliation with the with the truth or association with, with with the truth, I just don't I wouldn't trust them at all. I think they're saying they're not going to preference the Nationals and Liberal Party, but they did last time and it swung the federal election. So why wouldn't they do it again? A lot of the times these parties have people running who might have never even been to that electorate. So they're running on that anti-mandate thing to capture people's anger and fear when it is a more nuanced debate and we need to be looking to that evidence and presenting the facts clearly so everyone can understand 
and making appropriate decisions that are proportional to the risks that people face in their lives. Hannah Beth, our hearts break when we see some of the vision on TV of the floods in Lismore and beyond. The weeks ahead are going to be pretty tough for you and a lot of your peers and citizens nearby. Thank you for being with us in the transit zone. Thank you, Peter. Thank you, Margot. Margot, we'll catch up again in the next couple of weeks, probably in the campaign proper for the federal election 2022. Thanks, Margot. Thanks, Peter. Our guest in the transit zone this time, Dr. Hannah Beth Luke, the independent candidate for Page in northeastern New South Wales. The coalition incumbent she's challenging is Kevin Hogan of the Nationals, who's sitting on a two-party preferred vote of 59.4% from the 2019 federal election. If you'd like to email us at the Transit Zone, here is our email address, transitzonepod at gmail.com. We always welcome your comments, your questions, your ideas for new podcast episodes. transitzonepod at gmail.com. I'm Peter Clark in Melbourne, Australia. Thanks for listening. And please join us again soon, right here in the Transit Zone. You are now leaving the transit zone.